Hey, everybody. Uh, thanks so much for listening to The Collective Podcast. My name is Josiah, and I actually get to lead the ministry here with a bunch of other incredible people. Collective is the ministry for young adults for Grace Church Bath Campus. Uh, I hope you find this conversation helpful in your relationship with God. And I also want to invite you to check out Collective in person. We meet every Thursday night at 7 o'clock at Grace Church Bath Campus. And you can find all the info you need on our Instagram account, GCM underscore Collective. Once again, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy. We're actually starting a, a brand new series uh, this week, exactly called that. It's called uh, Processing the Past. So if you're with us for the first time, first couple of times, uh, you're coming at a really good time. You know, it's fall time. Uh, you know, uh, the leaves are out. Who likes to fall? Any fall fans in here? It, whose favorite season is fall? Who, okay, who the only reason you even live in Ohio is because uh, Ohio's falls are so wonderful. I, I, that's, that's me right there. You know, and Halloween, Halloween's coming up. Any Halloween fans in the room? Yeah, anyone like, you know, and so I, I just figured, uh, <laughs> I, I figured, you know, it's October why not talk about the spookiest thing of all, and that is uh, family baggage. Um, so that's what we're going to be talking about. This series is called uh, Processing Your Past, um, and, and full disclosure and, and giving credit where credit is due, uh, this series is based off a series I listened to by a guy, a guy named John Mark Comer. He's a, he was a pastor in Portland uh, for a long time, and he's one of those guys, every once in a while you find one of these, where just pretty much everything he puts out and everything he writes and everything he says is worth uh, diving into. And so if you're interested and any things we're talking about, I'm going to be pulling from him left and right uh, throughout this whole series. Uh, so if you, uh, he has a series called Dealing With Your Past that I would encourage you to check out. Um, let me start off with a story. So when I was in high school, uh, I, I, I signed up to go on a missions trip to inner city Philadelphia, okay? And I, I, I don't know how old I was, probably like 14 or 15 years old. And I signed up, uh, what we were supposed to do is we were supposed to go to inner city Philly and there was, there was a bunch of kids that, that grew up in, you know, in low income homes. And so we were gonna go and put on some kind of Bible camp for them, kind of like a daycare kind of thing where we would get to tell them about Jesus, tell their parents about Jesus. It was, it was this uber spiritual thing. It was this great opportunity. And me and one of my best friends in the whole wide world, uh, Evan Summer, uh, were signed up for this trip. And we got kind of pulled aside by our uh, youth leaders. And they said, you know, Josiah, Evan, you guys are, uh, you guys are like leaders in, in this youth group, okay? I don't know. If, if you didn't grow up in church, you don't know what I'm talking about, but just roll with me on this. You guys are like spiritual leaders in our youth group. And so we want to ask you, you two if you guys would lead the worship uh, for like our devotional time every morning for our team. And, and we were thinking, you know, we're, you're, you're feeling pretty good about yourself. You're like, yeah, I guess I am kind of a leader. You know, I kind of like a spiritual leader in this place. They really should listen to me more often, shouldn't they? You know, and, and so we agreed that we're going to lead this worship. So a few weeks out from the trip uh, happened, I, I hop on the phone with my buddy, Evan, and uh, we're supposed to talk about what worship songs we're going to play, uh, uh, you know, during this missions trip. And full disclosure, at this time, Evan and I had some tension between us. Uh, we both liked the same girl at the same time. And, and I don't know if you've ever been in, in this experience before where like your, your best pal likes the same girl. It's really awkward because, you, you know, you, you want to say bros before girls and whatnot, but 
but like, you, we all know. You know, some of you guys are like, you know, I, you, you say to your dude friends, you're like, you know, we are brothers for life. And the second you get into a quarter of a relationship, you're like, screw you. I'll see you guys later. I'm hanging out with her. You know, and so Heather and I were in that kind of situation. And obviously I was winning her over a little more effectively, like, you know, as you can see. And so, uh, you know, it was tense. And, and so that was like underlying. So we're on the phone talking about what worship songs we sh- were supposed to do. And I'm sure he wanted to, to play like, uh, if you know the song, How He Loves, that was like a bop at the time or the song Oceans is probably what I wanted to play at the time. So we're, and I remember we, at some point we got in such a disagreement about what worship songs to play on this mission trip for kids, right? The spiritual thing that we started yelling at each other, like over the phone, like, yelling at each other. I don't, I can't think of any other time I've yelled at someone over the phone and we're just screaming and saying, you don't understand what we're supposed to be doing. You're not taking this seriously. I'm trying to take this seriously. You don't understand. And we're going back and forth. I remember this is the only time I've ever done this. I was so mad at him. I got so mad at whatever he said. I don't even remember what he said that I, I hung up on him and I threw the phone across the room. I just chucked it across the wall. Now, luckily it was a Samsung intensity too. Um, so that could withstand a bullet train. Uh, so my phone was perfectly fine. Uh, but I just remember this rage uh, feeling when we're supposed to be planning this spiritual experience. Here's a quote by a guy named Peter Scazzaro who, who writes an incredible book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. It's another inspiration for the series, uh, and it's been one of the most formative books I've ever read. The premise of his book is also the premise of so much of Jesus' teaching. He says this, it is impossible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. It is impossible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. And by the way, if you doubt this, Jesus is saying this all the time throughout the New Testament. He's saying this over and over and over. You know what Jesus says? Jesus says, listen, your private life is your spiritual life. Your private life is your spiritual life. Your personal life is your spiritual life. Your family life is your spiritual life. Your emotional life is your spiritual life. Your sex life is your spiritual life. Uh, in Jesus's mind, spiritual maturity was, was not proven through, through biblical knowledge, acts of service, worship intensity, church attendance, ministry leadership, evangelism, affection towards those who don't know Jesus. These are the kinds of things that we think of define a spiritually mature person. I'm spiritually mature when I participate in these types of activities. But if you read the teachings of Jesus, Jesus is going to say, no, no, no. Your spiritual maturity is not just proven by these things, because all of these things are essential. But your spiritual maturity is proven by every moment of your life. Every moment of your life. Uh, You know, (laughs) spiritual maturity is actually proven in things like this. We need to be a little more honest. So so in this story, uh, when I I thought my spiritual maturity was proven by the fact that I was leading worship on a missions trip. That's what I thought. I looked at that moment. I'm like, you know what? I'm doing pretty good. I am a leader. I, the reality is, according to Jesus, my spiritual maturity was proven at the moment I threw the phone across the room. That was a better indicator of where I was at in my relationship with God at, than was these spiritual high moments. So can we be a little, we need to be honest with ourselves. 
Because a lot of us, I think we're, we're thinking, man, we're doing great. You know, I, I know a bunch of us in this room, we probably wouldn't identify as Christian yet. And we're just kind of checking things out. You're off the hook here. I'm talking about you guys that, you know, hands double raised, you know, that whole deal. I, we feel really, really good when we're doing all these things, but we need to be super honest with ourselves. Can you... Can you be super honest with yourself tonight? Just nod your head if you're capable of being super. Denial is super fun, you know, but it leads to a lot of bad things. Okay, be really honest with yourself. Do you find yourself having outbursts of anger? Regular outbursts of anger? Uh, when was the last time you yelled at your mom or, or your roommate? Uh, when was the last time, you, you know, you cussed at your coworker or you got really frustrated with your boss? Uh, do you find, this is a big one for me, do you find yourself uh, feeling the need to release your cynical thoughts through mean-spirited jokes? I'm just joking. I'm just being sarcastic. You know, I'm just joking. I'm joking. But if you actually look at the statement that you just said, you actually 100% meant everything that you just, this is a classic Josiah Vice right here, by the way. Um, do you find yourself uh, constantly anxious? constantly anxious, constantly nervous. Uh, when people ask you how you're doing, uh, do you like 50% of the time, do you say overwhelmed? Do you say tired and overwhelmed, right? Do, do, is that a regular thing in your life? Okay. Um, here's, here's another one. Do, do you find yourself uh, constantly battling insecurity? So every room that you walk into, you're thinking, what are they thinking about me? How can I prove myself? How am I coming across? You say something dumb and then you think about it all day long. Oh my gosh, why did I say that? And you know, when you lay at night, you're playing that reel of every dumb thing you said or did. I did this just the other day. I was in a meeting with a bunch of my superiors and I said my opinion and my opinion didn't go over very well. And for the rest of the day, I was thinking, ah, Josiah, you idiot. You shouldn't have said that. Just be quiet. No, stay in your lane. You know, that whole, whole kind of deal. Okay, how do you receive Christ? criticism. Same deal. How do you receive criticism? When someone confronts you with news that you don't want to hear, are you defensive? Do you find yourself getting super, super angry with them? Or do you find yourself just collapsing and saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Both of those are defense mechanisms, right? Because they're, they're ways of not receiving the criticism that's being, uh, do people tell you another advice of Josiah? Do people tell you that you're insensitive? Do they tell you that you're mean? Do they tell you that you don't really know how to control your tongue? You don't know how to convey a thought in a loving and an effective way. Um, are you cynical? Are you cynical? Do you, when you walk, do you look for the negative in people's lives? Is the first thing you notice about other people what's wrong with them and what they did incorrectly? Or do you look for the positive? Do you look for the hope? Cynicism and joy are opposites, or cynicism and hope are opposites. Do you hold resentment to other people? So there, there are people that you don't talk to. There's people that you cut off. There's people that you avoid because they're toxic. I can't be around those types of people. Do you talk negatively about other people when they're not in the room? Do you tell, do you tell your friends what's wrong with them, why you're upset with them? Do you secretly get excited when someone else fails? So when someone else does bad, you kind of get a little excited because that makes you, yourself feel a little bit better. You're like, oh, maybe I'm not as screwed up as I thought I was. Um, if the answer is yes to any of these questions, here's what you need to understand. That is the extent of your spiritual maturity. That is the extent of your spiritual maturity. Uh, Pastor Tim Keller, uh, who's deeply infected my, uh, affected my life, he says this, um, your spiritual maturity only goes as far as your weakest traits. Whatever your weakest trait is, that is the depth of your spiritual maturity. So if you read Jesus's teachings, he's constantly saying, listen, guys, we need to stop evaluating uh, ourselves based on our best moments. And we actually need to evaluate ourselves based on our patterns, 
our day-to-day, the things that we find ourselves falling into all of the time. That is what I'm looking at. Patterns of anxiety, cynicism, insecurity, fear, bitterness, etc. And here's why. Every broken area of your life is an area that Jesus hasn't been let in yet. Every broken area of your life is an area that Jesus hasn't been let in yet. Some of us don't know how to let him into particular areas. That's, that's fine and good, and that comes with time. But what does Jesus want more than anything? He doesn't want part of you. He doesn't want attendance. He doesn't want acts of service. He wants all of you. And what sp- true spiritual maturity is, is learning how to let Jesus in to all of you. All of that you are, all of what you do, every moment of your life. Now, here's why we're doing this series. Here's why we're doing this series. Um, I'm very thankful for our modern understanding of psychology. I'm very thankful for our modern push for, for counseling and trying to understand ourselves and trying to understand emotional patterns. And if you listen to any counselor ever, and if you read the Bible, they're going to come to the same conclusion. And the conclusion might feel a little weird, but it's a very, very true conclusion. In fact, it's a consensus. Here's what both the Bible and every counselor will say. Your present is being shaped by your past. Your present is being shaped by your past. Your emotional patterns, your thought processes, your behavior cycles, they are not random. In many ways, they are inherited. Uh, if there was any debate between nature and nurture, I think uh, where people have landed is both, right? What has happened to you in your past is affecting how you behave in the present. And this isn't just a modern, secular, psychological statement. This is actually a very, very biblical statement. It turns out that the Bible was teaching modern psychology before it was ever discovered and before it was ever invented. And if you don't believe me, uh, we're going to look at our, our portion of scripture today in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5 uh, verses 8 and 9. In this section, God is kind of going over the Ten Commandments and he's giving a little commentary on the Ten Commandments for the people of Israel. And here's what God says. Very interesting. Remember, he's writing this to an ancient world. He's not writing this to a modern audience. So the vocabulary he's going to use is ancient vocabulary, but try and see behind it for a second. He says, you must not make yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or the earth or the seas. That's the command right there. You must not bow down to worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And here's the key phrase right here. Punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and the fourth generations. I'm going to say that again. Punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and the fourth generations of those who, what? Hate me. Of those who hate me. But here's the good news, and here's a more important section. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations, not three or four, a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. Now, that phrase I, I picked out right there, punishing the children to the four, third and fourth generations, that is a phrase that strikes us as very odd, right? Does that make you a little uncomfortable? It makes me a little uncomfortable. Pretty much every time I read that, I'm like, whoa, God, what are you trying to say here? That feels kind of weird. Um, it doesn't feel fair to us that uh, children would be punished for their parents' sins, right? So if your mom went and robbed a bank, you know, sorry, guns are offensive. But if your mom went and robbed a bank with a lightsaber and, um, and she got caught, it would not be fair for you to be thrown into jail, right? Right? It, that would not be fair. Um, well, actually... 
God actually agrees with that. It's actually really clear in the book of Ezekiel. God specifically says, do not punish children for the sins of their parents, right? So God totally protects the individuality of all of us. We need to understand what punishment is in the Bible, okay? Uh, We have to understand that in the Bible, the vast majority of the time, God's punishment is not something that he afflicts upon you, but instead his punishment is something he allows you to inflict upon yourself, Okay, God's punishment is not something he inflicts upon you most of the time. It's normally something he allows you to inflict upon yourself. If you look really closely at my chin, you probably can't see it. Uh, I have a scar under my beard. I have a scar under my beard. And I don't remember how it happened, but my parents told me the story of what happened. Um, When I was about three years old, uh, unfortunately, I was not competent in bathing, and so my mom had to help me take a bath. Disturbing thought. And uh, so my mom would help me uh, take a bath, and I have uh, I have five siblings, so she would leave to tend to the other the other kids that were born at the time. And apparently, I had this really bad habit that I would stand up in the bathtub when she was gone. I don't know, you know, kids just do. I I just think I like standing, you know. But anyways, uh, so she would leave, and I. Would just stand up in the bathtub, you know, water's up to here, <laughs> just, like, just like chilling. And my mom would always come back in and she'd say, Josiah, you cannot stand in the bathtub, you'll slip and fall. I'm like, screw you, mom. So she'd leave again and I'd like stand up again. She'd Josiah, you cannot stand up in the bathtub, you slip and fall. Apparently this was like multiple month long, like struggle beef that I had with my mom. Um, one time, uh, she said, Josiah, you can't stand up in the bathtub or you'll slip and fall. She left. I stood up in the bathtub and I slipped and fall, fell and bam, landed right on my chin. It like split it open. So I had to go, I had to go to the hospital. They had to like patch that all up. I, uh, you know, it was pretty bad injury. By the way, I, so I was telling this story to my wife and Sarah was like, you know, that's not the worst injury I've ever heard of in the bathtub. I'm like, what is the worst injury? And she said, uh, she said that her cousin um, also had the same problem. She would just stand up in the bathtub and her mom would say, you know, uh, don't do that. She slipped and fell. And you know, uh, you know the faucet, there's that little thing you pull up to like turn it into a shower. That went up her butt. Uh, <laughs> so she had to get, I'm not kidding, butthole stitches. <laughs> they had, that, that's a very, yeah, so just think about that for a little bit. Um, hey, <laughs> I know, it, it, it's pretty bad. Um, look, there, there's two ways my mom could punish me. There's two ways that uh, my mom could punish me for ignoring her. One is to take me out of the bath and ground me or spank me or wash my mouth out with soap or whatever uh, punishment parents give their kids. The other punishment my mom could give is to not do anything to just leave me alone and let the natural outcome of my consequences unfold. Most of the time, that's how God punishes, which means it's not actually God that inflicts upon you the consequences of your wrongdoing. It's yourself. He, he just ceases to protect you from the ramifications of your own decision. So back to our passage, here's what God is saying. God is saying to Israel, he's saying, listen, guys, when you worship things that other than me, when you worship, think, dedicate, when you dedicate your life to shallow, harmful, selfish, hurtful, trivial things, when you worship work or relationships or self-image or mental health or schooling or alcohol or marijuana or Netflix or pornography or fill in the with literally any other thing than God, the damaging effects of those decisions are going to 
scar you or how the ancient world would have thought are going to curse you and your family to three or four generations. He's not necessarily inflicting a punishment. He's describing the outplay that is going to happen if they consist in ignoring him. Now, do you want to know something really fascinating? Brain caps on, lots of information today. Just track with me. Um, If you want to know something interesting, is anyone familiar with epigenetics? Is anyone interested? No. Literally no one. Okay, so my wife is uh, getting her master's in science, and so she comes home and tells me all this crazy stuff. I am by no means an epigeneticist. Uh, my wife is, is much smarter than I, and I, I'm actually not very intelligent at all. But from the little that I understand, uh, here, here's what I understand. Epigenetics is the study of how behaviors and environments affect your genes. Okay, so it's how the way, the decisions that you make and the environments that you go into, they affect your genes and those genes get passed down from one generation to another. Now, ready for the really fascinating thing? What the researchers have found is these genes get passed down about three or four generations. Interesting enough, right? The, the decisions that we make, the behaviors that we choose, the genetics that we have get passed down about three to four generations, which means the choices and the experiences of your parents, your grandparents, and even your great grandparents are actually wired into your DNA. Now, some of this is pretty obvious, and we, we know this pretty well. We know that alcoholism gets passed through the genes, Right? So if, you, if your parents were an alcoholic, there, there's a much higher chance that uh, you will struggle with alcoholism if you get into that. The same thing applies to drug addiction. Same thing applies to struggles with depression and anxiety. So we know that about mental health, that th- those are real patterns. Um, we also know that like things like joy and optimism, like there's positive things, also get passed down through the genes, your temperament and how you interact with the world. Um, we know that parents who commit crimes are for, far more likely to have children who commit crimes. And once again, I, I believe that's both nature and nurture. It's both that you were taught to do that and you have the biological disposition to commit something like that. However, in much more, more recent developments, researchers have found that it's not just your parents' tendencies or personalities or even addictions that get passed down through the genes. It's also their experiences. Fascinating, fascinating article. Um, Dr. Uh, Rachel Yehuda published an article entitled How Trauma and Resilience Cross Generations. And what she studied, uh, she, was ab- she studied Holocaust survivors, okay? And she, her and her team were able to isolate a stress hormone that only appeared in Holocaust survivors, right? So the trauma of the concentration camp, the trauma of, of being afraid for your life, it, this, they developed the stress hormone that was only with them. Get this. She tested the children of those Holocaust survivors and found the exact same stress hormone. Now get this. She tested the grandchildren of those Holocaust survivors and found the exact same stress hormone. This is very important because Holocaust survivors were not born with this hormone. They developed it through the experiences that they had, but those experiences were written into the genetic code of their children and their grandchildren. We need to think the same way about our struggles, actually. We actually need to, we're not as autonomous as we think we are. 
we need to think in, in the same way. It's not just that your family just so happens to struggle with anxiety. It's not that your family just so happens to be pretty materialistic in their outlook on things. Um, it is very likely that somewhere down the family line, that tendency was developed by choices that people in your family have made and experiences that people in your family had had. It's not just your past that shapes your present. It's your family's past. Here's the point. It's obvious. Your present is being shaped not just by your past, but by the past of your family way more than you think it is. Um, just, uh, uh, you know, as I was thinking on my own, my own life, my great grandfather, uh, was an abusive alcoholic. Okay. My great grandfather, my grandfather's dad, um, he was angry. He was abusive um, all the time. He had, he had a big, big temper. Um, then my grandfather, my dad's dad, um, was born with those tendencies, but he accepted Jesus Christ. So what he became was basically a, an angry Christian, right? So it, his, my grandfather's kids uh, don't think of him as abusive at all. They would never say anything along those lines. They just kind of laugh that he would snap all the time. He, 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 would, he just had that angry disposition. Um, my dad built off the legacy, so the trajectory got turned around. My dad made significant improvements upon that anger predisposition. So over the course of my life, my dad uh, has tremendous self-control, never abusive ever, overcome, 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 but the struggle is very much written into his code, right? There's an anger that got passed down there. I remember one night I was talking to my same friend, Evan. We were sitting around the campfire and I was telling him about these times that I kind of blew a gasket at home. Now, I I know that when I say blow a gasket, some of us have pretty traumatic backgrounds. And so what you think of is is abusive experiences. That is not what I'm talking about at all. I'm I'm just talking about um, losing my temper with with no... uh, outplay, no abusive outplay. But I was telling him about these times where I, I lost my temper. And I told him about one time, I was like, you know, that was an isolated incident. You know, it was a long day, stressful day. And then I told him about another time. You know, it was a long, stressful day, but you know, it was, it, then I told him about another time. You know, it, it was just, you know, the guys at work were being pretty bad. Then I told him about another time. I probably told him about four times that I lost my temper in the past year. And then I said, you know, but like, I don't have like an anger problem or anything like that. And he looked at me so gently. This is good friendship right here. And he says, just saw, I think you might have an anger thing. He says so nicely, so gently. It was very receivable, but I think you might have an anger thing. Sure, you're not abusive. Sure, you've never hit anyone or hurt anyone or done anything crazy, but that lives inside of you. And and that's a real battle that you have to deal with. That anger is written into my DNA. It's way easier for me to lose my cool than probably most people in this room. Now, here's what I want you to do. Let's flip the script. I want you to think about your family's weaknesses. I know this can be hard to do, but I want you to think about your family's weaknesses. What are the patterns? What are the patterns? Think about yourself and think about your, your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents. We're not blaming. We're not blame-shifting. You're responsible for every decision you've ever made. I'm, we're just trying to identify a pattern. Uh, what are the patterns of emotional instability in your family? So think about this. Are your parents anxious people? Uh, here's a really good indicator. How did they respond during COVID, right? So, so think that through. How, how did they react through, through that season? Now think about this. Are you anxious, 
You might have done better during COVID, but how do you do during work? How do you do in relationships? Uh, is there a history of suicidal ideation in your family? Is there a history of tendency towards depression in your family? All right, think about uh, patterns of insecurity. Insecurity. So what types of comments did your mom make about her own physical appearance? What, what, what types of work did your dad do to preserve his own physical appearance? Now, do you struggle with that kind of confidence? Do you feel like those are standards that you have to live up to? Um, think about how your dad dealt with conflict. Did he deal with it head on or was he kind of afraid? Was he kind of a timid guy? You, you know, he, he didn't really feel like a strong, now think about how you deal with conflict. Do you deal with it in, in a courageous way? Not a jerk way, but a courageous way? Or do you avoid it? Um, think about fear and insecurity. Or fear and security, I'm saying. Fear and security. Your parents always had to be safe all the time. They never went into the quote-unquote rough neighborhoods. Maybe they were germaphobes. Maybe they had random phobias. Like what? Are random phobias showing up in your life? Are there places on this world that you just won't go to because you're afraid of what's going to happen? Is there a level of income that you have to have because you're, you're afraid that if you fall below it, you're not going to be safe? Um, I'm, I'm actually, speaking of COVID, I'm, I, for real, I'm actually pretty concerned about the kids that grew, young kids who grew up with anxious parents during COVID. Because there's, there's two years or three years that are incredibly formative to them where all they were taught was to be afraid, be afraid, be afraid. And I'm not sure that we're going to see the total outplay of what that's like until 20 years from now. I'm pretty concerned about that. Well, think about your own life. Maybe it's patterns of recklessness. Your dad always got in trouble, so you're always getting in trouble. Your mom never thought things through. You never think things through. Your, your grandfather could never commit to anything, including his own family. Now you struggle committing to anything. Maybe, it, maybe it's materialism. So there's a level of wealth that you have, have all the time. Maybe it's eating patterns. So your parents were constantly overeating. And so you have this predisposition to overeat or your parents were always under eating. So you have this predisposition. Maybe it's, it's romance. Um, so, so studies have shown, uh, certain studies have shown that daughters of divorced parents have, have a 60% higher divorce rate in marriages. Um, so, so if, when your parents got divorced, this, this is not something you're stuck with, but, it, but it is true that, you have a higher chance, and I think that's nature and nurture. I think both the example of seeing a failed marriage, but also having the biological tendencies to, to behave in a way that would uh, end a marriage. Or you might want to be nothing like your parents at all, right? So I know I talk to people all the time. They're always saying, you know, just I hate, you know, I hate my parents, mom, dad, screw her, you know, like all that kind of stuff. I want to be nothing like them. That's why I moved out. That's why I got a different job. I see how they're so unhealthy. They're so immature. I want to be nothing like them. You need to remember something though. You need to remember something that those who rebel against their families are just controlled by their families as those who conform. Those who rebel against their families are equally as controlled by their families as those who conform. We see this all the time. So you might be super, super uh, liberal and progressive in your political ideology. Why? Well, my family is bigoted. They're mean. They're conservative. They love Tucker Carlson. You know, like, you know, my, my family, I want to be nothing like them. Well, listen to me. That's not independent thinking. I, I'm not saying that you're wrong, but that's not independent thinking. 
that's reactionary thinking. So your thinking is actually still based on your parents, even though you went in the opposite direction. My, my dad is a pastor, and stereotypically, there's two types of pastor's kids. It's just a stereotype. Um, but there, there's the pastor's kids that are goody two-shoes all the time, and there's pastor kids, you know, Katy Perry's pastor kids, right? So, you know, I kiss the girl and I like it. Like, there's, there's two kinds of stereotypes. Well, listen, both of those stereotypes are both basing it on their dad, They're both trying to prove something to their father. Whether you can admit it or not, your decisions are fundamentally influenced by the generational patterns of your family. And that might make you feel angry and that might make you feel hopeless, but bear with me. I'm not done yet. Uh, How are we doing? Everybody, you doing okay? It's turn to the person next to you and say, I'm doing okay. I got, I'm I'm locked in. Like I got this. I got lots of information, but we can do it. Um, The book of Genesis The book of Genesis tracks a family line, okay? The book of Genesis tracks a family line. Uh, There's three generations that ultimately lead to the nation of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, okay? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The first generation is Abraham, and we find this in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham and his wife, Sarah, are trying to follow God's call to move from one country to another country. So they're traveling, right? They're like uh, the, the hobbits or the heartfoots in this new Lord of the Rings show. Sorry, I just nerded myself. I didn't mean to do that. Uh, but but they're, tra- they're traveling over to this other country. As they are approaching this other country, they pass through Egypt. And read this with me real quick. As Abraham was approaching the border of Egypt, Abraham said to his wife, Sarah, or Sarai, look, you are a very beautiful woman. Classic emotional manipulation opening line. Look, you are a very beautiful woman. Here's what he continues. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is my wife and she's super hot. Let's kill him and then we can save her. So here's the line, ladies, so romantic. Please tell the Egyptians that you are my sister then they'll let us live. Then we'll be fine. They'll spare my life. So they're traveling through Egypt. They're afraid that Abraham's going to get killed because his wife is attractive. So he asks his wife to pretend to be his sister. What does he do? He lies. Okay. You got that? He lies. So they meet Pharaoh. They're like, who's this? You know, and he's like, it's my sister. And the Pharaoh literally says, okay, I'm going to marry her then since you know, she's just your sister. Pharaoh takes her. They get married. Long story short, Pharaoh just starts having all this kind of bad luck that's happening to him because God's, you know, trying to protect Abraham. Uh, Pharaoh goes back to Abraham and says, is this your wife? And Abraham says, yes, this is my wife. And Pharaoh's like, why? That is the stupidest thing to lie about of all time. Like why? You had zero reason to lie about that. Okay. You might think that story is a fluke. In Genesis chapter 20, Abraham does literally the exact same thing. Again, I won't make you turn there. He, they're passing through this land. He meets this guy named King Abimelech. King Abimelech says, who's this? Abraham's like, that's my sister. Exact same deal over again. It's a pattern. Okay. The next generation, Abraham gives birth to his son, Isaac. Isaac also marries a woman. Her name is Rebecca. In Genesis chapter 26, Isaac and Rebecca are passing through the exact same land, the land of King Abimelech. This place apparently for some reason makes them very nervous. They're afraid something terrible is going to happen. And what happens as they pass through, Isaac does the exact same thing. 
King Abimelech comes up uh, to Isaac and Rachel. He's like, who's this? Isaac says, that is my sister. Now read this because I, I think this is hilarious right here. When, when, I, uh, when Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from the window and saw Isaac caressing his sister, Rebecca. You know, you just like imagine this from his perspective for a little bit. You know, he walks out and he, you think like there's two siblings and you're like, why are they making out? That's super weird. Like, I know this is Bible times, but it's not that bad. You know, uh, so he continues on. So King Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, she's really your wife. Why did you say she is my sister? Self-protection. I thought you were going to hurt us. Isaac also turns out to be a liar. He does the exact same thing that his father does. Everybody tracking with me? Third generation, this is where it hits home. Okay. Third generation, I think this is where uh, this story is going to be pretty relatable to you and I. Isaac doesn't have one son. He has two sons, two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob was the liar of the family, okay? Jacob was a deceiver. Actually, Jacob lied more often in the Bible than either his parent or his grandparent. And there was a custom in the ancient world where a father would come to their oldest son and he would bless them, okay? We understand now that uh, the most important, for most people, the most important piece of your psychology is your father's approval. So if you feel, I'm talking right now, if you feel like you have approval from your father, that is one of the greatest blessings a person can have that will give you confidence, that will give you strength. If you do not feel like you are blessed or approved by your father, there's a lot of things that you have to overcome. And and most of us know that, right? There's a lot of struggles. They can be overcome, but they are very, very difficult. It's the single most defining thing of his life. So Isaac, the father, was supposed to bless his oldest son. Here's the catch. Jacob, the liar, is not the oldest son. Esau is. Everybody tracking me? Jacob is not the oldest son. Esau is, but Jacob wants the blessing of his father. Jacob wants to take the blessing of his father. He wants it so bad. So what does he do? Um, Well, his father, Isaac, was super old. He was losing his eyesight. He might've been losing his mind a little bit, maybe some dementia coming in. So when the time for the blessing ceremony came, Jacob puts on Esau's clothes. And Jacob does the best impression of his brother Esau that he can do. And while Esau is out and about preparing to come ready for the ceremony, Jacob comes in instead. Jacob convinces his father to bless him instead of Esau to steal it. He lied. And I want you to picture the pain. And I want you to picture the disappointment. Mind you, this is the number one thing that Esau wanted with his life. I want you to picture the heartbreak and disillusionment when Esau walks in and realizes that he cannot be blessed by his father. Here's what it says, uh, verse 32. Esau's father, Isaac, asks him when Esau comes in, who are you? Who are you? I'm your son, Esau said. I'm your firstborn. Isaac trembled violently and said, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I just ate it before you came in and I blessed him and indeed he will be blessed. In other words, it's gone. It's gone. I gave that to that guy that came in. When Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me too, my father. Bless me too. Then Esau wept 
who wept aloud. Esau, if you read the story, had to go the rest of his life without the blessing of his father, the blessing that he longed for the most, the thing that he longed for the most. And if you track his story, this is a part that haunts him for a very long time until God works in his life. Listen to me, listen to me, every person in here. Some of us are dealing with the ramifications of a generational curse that we never took part of. Abraham's a liar, Isaac's a liar, Jacob's a liar, Esau gets screwed. Some of us are dealing with the ramifications of decisions we never made and issues we never brought to bear, yet we have to take the consequences. We did nothing wrong, but what we longed for the most was stripped away. Listen to me. You did nothing to cause your parents' divorce, but who does your parents' divorce affect more than either parent? You. Uh, You did nothing to cause your dad to be a jerk, but who does your dad's decisions and temperaments have the greatest ramifications upon? You. You. You did nothing to cause your siblings to malfunction, the things they got into, the things they they went. But now it's like your parents don't even know that you exist. Your whole childhood, it felt like your parents didn't know that you exist because they were so preoccupied trying to help your dysfunctional sibling. That got stripped away from you. You did nothing to bring anxiety into your genetic line. You did nothing. But you're the one that's on meds for it. You're the one who has to go to therapy every week. You're the one that has to get through the job interviews and get through the work shift. You did nothing to make your mother so insecure. And now it feels like they're more of a child than you are. It feels like you have to parent your parents. And you could go on and on and on. Think about your own story and think about your situation. You did nothing. And the blessing that was supposed to be yours was stripped away. The thing you long for the most, you never got to partake in. The blessing of a good, loving life was taken. And then, of course, there's probably no greater psychological pain than being not being blessed by your father. I, I remember talking to, to one of my friends, I, my, my good buddy. Um, his dad was just a tool, you know, his whole life. And so he, he, he left their family. Um, he... He's one of those guys, it's like, like kind of worse that he was in and out, you know, because the mental games that go with that. And so he was in and out, but he, he never showed up. He was never there. He was a jerk to their mom, um, like all this other kind of stuff. And I remember sitting down, I was hanging out with my buddy probably a year or two ago, and we were sitting down getting dinner, and, and he said, Josiah, I feel like I'm cursed to become like him. I feel like I'm cursed to become like him. I don't think I'll ever be able to have a healthy marriage. I, he said, I understand my view of God comes from him. I don't think I'll ever be able to have a healthy view of God. I feel like I'm cursed because of his decisions, but decisions that I have never made. So you might be thinking, am I just cursed? Like, is, is that the end of the story? Am I just stuck with the decisions that other people have made? Is the blessing really stripped away? Very important. In Mark chapter 10, there's a story of a bunch of moms trying to bring their really young children to Jesus. They're trying to bring them up to Jesus. Um, Have have you ever watched kids? 
have you ever noticed that kids are super drawn to certain adults and you don't know why? Like they follow the adults around, they follow them every, they're, it's, they're like locked in. Jesus was one of those adults. So, so these kids lock into Jesus, they want to be close to him. But as the kids were being brought to Jesus, Jesus's disciples came up and tried to shoo them away. Said, no, the teacher's busy, no, the rabbi's busy, don't be with him. And this is one of the only times in the Bible where the Bible tells us that Jesus was indignant. He was furious. It's one of the strongest words for anger that you could use in that language. Nothing could have made Jesus more mad than someone trying to keep these kids away. So he's frustrated with his disciples, but then he looks at these kids with the deepest compassion and the deepest empathy that you have ever seen in your entire life. And Jesus says this right here. Jesus says, let the children come to me and don't stop them. For the kingdom of God, my place, my land, my kingdom belongs to those who are like these children. I tell you the truth, anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom like this little child will never enter it. Here's the key. Then he took the children in his arms. He placed his hand on their heads and he blessed them. Look at me. Jesus came so that those who have never been blessed by their families can finally be blessed by their father. Jesus came so that those who have never been blessed by their family can finally be blessed by their father. Jesus came to break the generational curse. Jesus came to end the patterns and end the cycles. Jesus came to, what what does he say? So that you can be born again. So that you can restart new frameworks, new ways of thinking. Do you know what what makes Jesus indignant? Do, Do you know what makes him more mad than anything else? It's actually your pain. And it's actually your hurt. It's actually the things that were stripped away from you. That's what the Bible says makes Jesus furious. The only time Jesus ever raises his voice with people in the Bible is when they try and prevent people from getting to him. Do you know why Jesus Christ came to earth? Jesus came to earth to bless you, to give you the love you've been deprived of, to show you the faithfulness you've never experienced, to give you the protection that you've been stripped from, to give you the guidance and the the direction that you've always hoped for. Jesus came to bless you and Jesus Christ came so that you could belong to a new family, not removing the old, but replacing the priority, a new family so that you could be blessed by your true father, even if the father that you had on this earth never blessed you to begin with. The prophet Isaiah says that Jesus came to be cursed so that you could be blessed. That Jesus was rejected by his father, so you could be accepted by yours. That Jesus was betrayed by his family, so that you could belong to a new one. That Jesus, on purpose, intentionally, took on the greatest family curse of all, so that you wouldn't have to be defined by yours. Jesus hung on the cross so that you could be, belong to the family of God. That's what the gospel story is. Jesus has come to to rewrite and reframe. And in light of everything that Jesus has done, what do you do when you want to be blessed by God? You do what the kids did. You come to Jesus. You get close to him. And Jesus promises, he swears he gave his life, that he will put his hand on your head, and bless you. He will rewrite 
what's been demolished, what's been defiled, what has been destroyed. I need you to know something. I need you to know something. Jesus didn't just come to fix your future. He came to heal your past. Jesus didn't only come to fix your future. He came to heal your past. Listen, some of us have hit a wall in our relationship with God, right? We've hit a wall in our relationship. It was super exciting at the beginning. We're making a lot of progress in the beginning. We, you know, joy and hope and all these things were flooded into our lives. And, and you hit a wall and you don't want to think about your past, right? You, you just want to move on. You just want to move forward. You're like, my sins are forgiven. All this stuff is forgiven. I don't care. It doesn't even matter. I just want to move forward. But it's not working for some reason. It's not working. And the reason that it's not working is actually you're not letting Jesus in to your past. The, the reason actually is you're not inviting Jesus into your whole story. You're only inviting him into part of your story. And if your past is affecting your present, Jesus is trying to heal your past so it can transform your present, but you need to let him do that. You need to invite him in. Um, so so here's, here's, I just want to get real practical and end and, and here. What does it mean to invite Jesus into our past? What does it mean to invite Jesus in, into healing our past? Um, and what it looks like is, is processing. What it looks like is processing. I, I have a resource um, if you want it. You don't have to take it. Um, it's called a Genogram Workbook. This comes from an organization called Practicing the Way that I Love. I, we printed off a bunch of them that are just every four seats or so. And uh, if you want a digital version, it's in the link in our bio. You can look at that right here. Um, here's what this workbook does. It has you ask questions about your family, going back to three to four generations. It has you map out who your family is and what, you're, what they're like going back about three to four generations. But whether you engage with this workbook or not, and I'd encourage you to, whether you engage with it or not, um, it asks you three questions. And I want every person in this room right now in your mind or on your notes, on the backside of your notes, to answer these three questions. Here's the first question right here. It's very important. Everybody listening? What are the ways my family is inconsistent with the way of Jesus? What are the ways my family is inconsistent with the way of Jesus? Those are the generational sins. That is the generational curse. Now, notice, I did not ask, what do you not like about your family? That's not what I asked. What parts of your family drive you crazy? That's not what I asked. My wife has actually shown me that actually some of my favorite parts about my own family are unhealthy. And some of my favorite parts about the way I tend to interact with people based on the way I was raised uh, is actually not a healthy way to interact with people and is actually inconsistent with the way of Jesus. So, so I didn't ask what are your favorite and least favorite parts about your family. What parts of your family, parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, are inconsistent with the way of Jesus? Here's the second question. What are the generational sins that I am carrying forward? So first you ask, what, what's wrong up here? You know, my mom, my grandma, my, get all your angst out and, you know, suck it up. You know, but like get it all out. Then you need to ask, but what am I carrying forward? Because one day you're maybe, you know, God willing, you're going to be the mom that the kids complain about. You're going to be the grandpa that the kids complain about right? You're, you're going to be the, the mom or dad that they don't understand me. They had it all wrong. They were so unhealthy. That's going to be you. So what are the generational sins that I am carrying forward? 
the insecurities, the anxiety, the depression, the unhealthy way of interacting with people, the unfaithfulness, the, the uh, lack of self-control. Uh, what are the things that I am carrying forward? And I think you'll be shocked of how much of your brokenness can be traced through your past and show up in your own lap in the day to day. But then the workbook ends with this third question, and I think this is a, a critical question because we have to, you have to make action steps, right? You have to make a game plan. Here's the third question. What do I need to stop, start, or continue as I become like Jesus? I want you to think about it. I want you to write this down. What, what do I need to stop, start, or continue as I become like Jesus? What are the patterns in my life that need to end? That doesn't mean you know how to end them right now. You just recognize that you do need to end them. What are the patterns that need to be introduced in my life? My parents were never engaged with church. Well, guess what? That's what God is calling you to. My, my parents uh, were never generous with their money. Well, guess what? That's what God is calling you to. Uh, my parents were never forgiving towards the people that screwed them over. Well, guess what? That's what God is calling you to. What do I need to stop? What do I need to start? And then what do I need to continue? What are, what are the things that, that they did teach me or did introduce that I need to continue on in my journey with Jesus? You need to answer those questions. And we need to make a real game plan. And, and let me make something real clear. Jesus is not asking you to snap your fingers and all of a sudden all your problems go away. Jesus is not asking you to wake up tomorrow morning and magically erase all this nature and nurture that's built into your, your genetics. All Jesus is asking you to do is turn around the trajectory. <laughs> to stop running away from him and start running towards him. And then your mistakes and your failures, actually, honestly, for your family, probably won't be these big, bad, traumatic stories. They'll probably just turn into funny stories. Yeah, he did his best, but he messed up that one time. That was kind of funny. He's asking you to turn around slowly and steadily. He's not asking you to fix all your family's problems. He's asking you to trust him with your family problems. It's two very different things. And Jesus probably isn't going to snap his fingers and make them go away, but he will turn you in the opposite trajectory if you let him do that, both in your life and in the generations and generations to come. Because whether you like it or not, you will build some kind of a legacy. (laughs) Lastly... For those of us in this room that you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're with us today. I'm so glad you listened to my very, very long ramble. Um, Maybe this is the first time that you ever heard that Jesus is interested in your personal life. Maybe this is the first time you ever heard uh, that the reason Jesus died and the reason he took the cross and and I could... Talk. I could explain that all another time, but the reason he did all that is actually to heal you of your trauma and of your unhealthy cycle. Maybe this is the first time you're hearing all this, and I just want to let you know that Jesus Christ is inviting you into a relationship with him tonight. It, the, the door is always open. He wants you to join the family of God. He, he came to die so that you could join the family of God. And if that's something you want to talk about and that's something you want to explore, talk to the friend that brought you, talk to me, talk to the band guys, talk to whoever. But that's why this ministry exists and, and we, we want to help you journey and, and wrestle through that, okay? Take those workbooks if you want them. If, if you can print it off on the link. And in the link tree in our bio is actually some video resources that show you how to interact with that resource, okay? Let me pray for us. 
Once again, seriously, thanks for taking the time to listen to this podcast. If you have any questions about anything that we talked about, please don't hesitate at all to reach out. Uh, you can shoot a direct message to our Instagram, but I'd also love to give you my personal email. It's J-O-B-O-G-U-E at graceohio.org. And if you shoot an email to that, I'd love to talk with you about anything going on at, at all. Once again, we'd love to see you in person at Collective. We meet at 754 Gent Road, Fairlawn, Ohio at seven o'clock every Thursday night. And we'd hope to see you there.